nutrition, gut health, mental health, hormones, and so much more. These all play roles in sustainable weight management. So, I scoured the globe with top experts in fitness, health, and weight loss to bring to you this podcast. So take a seat and enjoy the ride. So everyone, welcome to the Matter Over Mind Experience. I'm your host, Master Trainer and Weight Management Expert, Narado Zico Powell. And today I have for you Dr. Scott Eilers, licensed clinical psychologist, intensive outpatient program director, and author of the fantastic book for When Everything is Burning. And of course, as always, we have a hack of the episode, right? And today's hack is going to be how can we acknowledge anxieties and how can we start to overcome them? And with that being said, let's welcome Dr. Eilers to the show. Hey, Scott, how are you doing today? I'm good, Zico. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to have a good conversation with you today. Stay here, my friend. And with that being said, tell my audience about yourself. So you covered some of the basics, but I guess what I would add to that is during my training, um, my education, my supervision internships to, to be a psychologist or to be a therapist, I felt like a lot of it was lacking and, and just wasn't like cohesive or comprehensive enough. Um, there were things I discovered on my own mental health journey that my education barely touched upon, uh, exercise being a big one of those, which I know you're a, a big advocate of, and nutrition for that matter. Um, like those were two things that were really crucial to improving my own mental health and um, they were things that I really saw, I feel like neglected in my own field. Um, and so once I, once I was licensed, kind of out there in the field and doing my own thing, something I became very passionate about was constantly learning about more, not necessarily complementary and alternative treatments, but just, just extra information that can help people that isn't, in my opinion, like well disseminated or well understood. Um, and not only making that a part of my practice, working with people, but um, also eventually doing more advocacy work on social media, um, obviously writing a book, as you mentioned, I'm working on a second book. I, I just want to make sure that everybody out there has the ability to access the information that they need to optimize and manage their own mental health. And my, my own experience has been like, it's surprisingly hard to do that. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what I'm here for. That's what I'm all about. And, you know, I'm no expert in the topic, but I do feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there. And a lot of times people who've never struggled with a mental health issue, trying to tell other people who have, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of misstep there as well. That's why even with myself, I try to stay in my lane and I'm going to take it from the side of working out, for example, right? I've had people say, you know, the so-and-so doesn't want to work out because they don't have enough willpower. So-and-so doesn't want to work out because they're lazy. And what they don't realize is when some people try to work out, their body creates excess inflammatory cytokines that makes it hurt. It's hard for them to move. It's hard for them to recover the next day. And it's a terrible feeling. Who wants to go through that? Right. right. So me being in my field and being an expert in my field, understand that and make and teach my clients how to make gradual changes to overcome that. So you being an expert in your field, 
can also add those in the well. So you don't still tell someone, you know what I've listened to you for the last hour. What it comes down to is you don't have enough willpower. Go out there and, and learn how to think better. Like, right? So right. I'm glad they're experts like yourself is really what I'm really boiling that down to. But And before we even get to that, I want to know as well, what made you originally interested in psychology? It was a lot of different things. It, the primary, the primary, I guess, push for me being interested in psychology is, to be frank with you, it was the, it was one of three classes in high school that did not bore me to tears. Um, I was not a high achiever academically, like in high school, mostly because I didn't go that much. I skipped a lot of classes. Um, I just wasn't, I wasn't in a good frame of mind, and I wasn't very interested in very many things. There were, there were three classes that I took. I'm like, this is kind of all right finance, computer science, and psychology. So I pretty much narrowed it down to those three. Um, finance, I quickly learned I'm not actually that good at it. So that narrowed it down to two. <laughs> and computer science actually did end up being my first choice. Um, actually, I briefly had a degree in information technology. Um, and a, not briefly had a degree. I still have a degree. I briefly had a career is what I should say. Um, and it was all right. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I could have done it, but I wasn't passionate about it. And as often happens to me, I got bored. And when I get bored, I tend to change my life pretty dramatically. Um, so after about a year of working in IT, I decided to pursue what I think was really the only academic pursuit that I ever loved, which was psychology. So that's, that's honestly the main reason. Um, the more I learned about mental health, the more I realized it was something that had impacted my life directly and indirectly for as long as I've been alive. I realized I'd been struggling more than I realized. I also realized a lot of people around me had been struggling more than I realized, friends and family. And um, I really started to regard it as like one of the most important things about life and, and something that I think so often is neglected or, as you pointed out, misunderstood, uh, oversimplified. It's a, that's a very real problem. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between acute psychological distress and a chronic mental health issue. Because like, not everyone has an anxiety disorder, right? But everybody has been anxious. There's nobody out there who doesn't know what anxiety feels like. It's a universal human emotion. And I think where we get into a lot of the kind of well-meaning, but probably bad advice, like you mentioned, is people not realizing that that's a different thing. And people draw upon their own experiences and think like, well, you know, I was nervous the last time I had a job interview or had a first date or something. So here's the things that helped me. And they're basic, simple things. And those aren't necessarily the same things that are going to help someone with a chronic anxiety disorder. They're similar feelings, but they're different levels and they require different interventions. And we tend to oversimplify and over-relate, I think. I agree. And in my limited experience, the two, as you say, um, it, um, issues that really get um crossed over a lot are OCD and anxiety. People yeah. throw those words around so much. And it I used to do it until I listened to a podcast and I listened to the mental health specialist explain that. I was like, you know what? I need to stop saying that because it really is not the same thing. And, you know, like I said, everybody's experienced anxiety. Some everybody's experienced maybe even OCD-ish type symptoms. But do you have a chronic issue? That's com Those are completely different. So you may think, okay, this helped me with my the anxiety I was experiencing at the time. But if someone's experiencing chronic anxiety disorder, 
that may help them some, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done there. So, I, so anybody that's really in an earshot of what I'm saying, when you before you start throwing around words like OCD and anxiety, because I had to do that myself, think about it and maybe phrase it a little bit different um, or just for the sake of even not even oversimplifying it. Because you do you do you have a chronic anxiety disorder? Possibly. Are you do you have OCD? Possibly. ADD is another one. Do you you have ADD or ADHD? Possibly. But don't just throw those words around. Like I said, I had to stop doing that myself because I realized that it's just it's really just not appropriate. Yeah. Um now with that being said, because I did a deep dive on your Instagram and when I uh I kind of stalked your page, right? So you know, yes, everyone, I am a I'm a bona fide Instagram stalker, if I didn't know that. And you said something that I really love. You said, sometimes our deepest hurts come from the most normal parts of our lives. And I think you're going to say something about anxiety here, I kind of feel like. But go ahead and break that down for us. Well, that could that could relate to a lot of things. That could be about anxiety. That could be about depression. That could be about grief. But what I was, I would, I'm going to be honest with you. I was in a weird mood that day. I remember the day I wrote that. I was way in my head, way in my feelings about some certain things. But what I was thinking about when I wrote that was like, there's a there's a really really big emphasis in the mental health world right now on trauma, on PTSD, on, on psychological trauma, and a lot of people really like resonate with the idea of a PTSD diagnosis to explain some of their symptoms or some of their struggles um, to an extent where I think it's also becoming overgeneralized. Like there are some very prominent um, mental health influencers, some of whom are professionals um, who have floated ideas like that all mental health symptoms are in fact trauma related. Um, I, I personally have a problem with that sentiment. Um, but what I was thinking of on that particular day is like the universal realities of life that we all face. Those are bad enough. Like you don't need to have experienced a special labelable type of hurt to have the right to say, like, I've really struggled. I've really been hurt. I've really had a hard life. For example, like death, like I'm not going to be a little morbid and pessimistic, but whatever, like every human being is going to have a loved one die at some point in their life. And that's like just about the worst thing that can happen, right? Like what is really, there's not a whole lot worse than that. And that's not considered a trauma. That's normal. Like you'll lose your parents, you know, that's normal. That's a part of life that is just built in when we're brought into existence. And I just think there isn't enough acknowledgement out there that even if you have what most people would consider to be a normal life, not an, not a harder than average life, that there's still going to be periods of time that are absolutely horrible because that is part of existing in our world. So I guess it's kind of a dark post. Not all my posts are that dark for anybody listening. I have my moods. They, my posts are very mood congruent. Sometimes I'm in a really good mood and I'm like, here's my morning routine. Here's my meal prep. I'm, I'm all over the place, but I do get into those darker moods sometimes. And I, I'm usually like pretty open about that on there and, because that's a part of life and that's a part of the journey too. And it, it's unrealistic, I think, to present yourself as like, I'm always happy. I'm always upbeat. Here's everything that's good about me. That's just, even for someone whose job is mental health and who like should know all the strategies and all the techniques, I have bad days. I have bad weeks too. And that was that was just the day when a lot of things were hitting me and I decided to post about it. So that's kind of what I was getting at with that. 
Yeah, like I had a fantastic childhood. I mean, I grew up in Jamaica. It was a two-bedroom apartment. So I didn't grow up rich. But let me tell you, my childhood was banging fantastic. I mean, I like for now, I watch cartoons a lot. People laugh at me because I love cartoons. And I'm talking about like Big City Greens, Disney cartoons, because they remind me of my childhood. And my childhood sure. was absolutely fantastic. But at the same time, I've never, I can't think of any one thing that stuck out as a trauma in my life, right? But at the same time, there are things that I do that are influenced from my childhood. Like I remember, and I, I've really do these things a lot. I don't really do these things now at all, but I used to always feel like I wasn't enough because I grew up in a society where you, you, you always say, if, if you got an A, why didn't you get an A plus? Yep. If you got an A plus, then um, why didn't you get this next award? Like I was always taught as this, the smart one, the intellectual one. And I was always expected to be at that higher level. So at one point I just started skipping classes because I couldn't take the stress anymore. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I brought that over into my adult life because I never addressed it, you know, because I wasn't taught as a child how to deal with complex emotions. I'm still learning this stuff right now. Right. So those normal parts of your life. Yeah. Even, even myself, I had a fantastic childhood. And never really experienced any quote unquote drama. There were things that happened that caused me to react to things now. Like I'm not reactionary anymore, but I used to be a very reactionary person. And I used to feel like I had to prove myself or why would you say this? Or why? Because I grew up in an, in an aggressive society. And those are things that have impacted my physical, emotional and mental state as well. So, yes, even from the normal parts of your lives, again, I'm no expert. But I think that even from the normal parts of your life, you start to stop and realize where these thoughts are really coming from and start to really address them can really change your life. So thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's absolutely banging, man. You said something else that I like too. And you said, uh, if you believe something with all your heart, it only means you have heard it many times before. I didn't even know what that meant. So really explain that for me. That is something that is one of the core premises of the book and something that I really break down in detail there but the 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 medium length version between the whole without going into the whole chapter but providing a bit more context in the Instagram post is we essentially have two ways of knowing things once we're adults anyway there's the thing that makes the most sense and there's the thing that feels right when you hear it and they're not always the same thing the way that we learn, like think about learning language, for example, you learn language by hearing, you know, when you're little, you hear the adults in your life, mainly your parents and whoever else is around you, call something the same thing over and over and over again, right? Like, if I hear people, if, if I don't know anything about language, and I hear enough people call this a water bottle, and I'm listening, and I pay attention, I'm going to eventually figure out this thing is a water bottle. Because through repetition, I've understood that that's what that means, right? So when we're young, we don't really have much of a filter. Our brains have not evolved what we call critical thinking skills yet. That's actually generally a good thing when you're young because you don't really question what you hear. You're basically just a sponge so that you can learn as quickly as possible. Because, it, I mean, as you kind of just alluded to when you're talking about your own childhood, like being a human has a very steep learning curve. There's a lot of stuff we got to figure out. We got to figure it out pretty quickly. So time is of the essence when you're young. And you don't have time to just sit around and think about everything. you got to hear it and believe it and be like, okay, that's what that means. And when you're talking about something like a simple label for an object, that's a pretty harmless thing, right? But 
those aren't the only things we learn when we're growing up. We also learn beliefs and values and ideas that aren't provable or disprovable. Like your best is never good enough and A is not good enough. If you hear that a lot growing up, or even if it's not, even if people don't even have to actually say it, even if it's just made known through your parents' reactions to your report cards, for example, that is something that will start to feel true to you. And something that has got that ring of truth, something you grew up believing in, even as you get older and develop critical thinking skills and hear other perspectives and other viewpoints, and even if those new viewpoints make more sense to you than the old ones, that feeling of this is true won't just magically go away because you've heard something new. Because the more often you have heard something, the more your brain considers it to be truthful. That's how we gauge things. That's how we gauge the accuracy of things. Um, a really benign example of this that, that I like to, to bring up, because it usually doesn't hurt anybody's feelings, is sports fandom. If, if, if you grew up in a household where someone was a really big fan of a certain sports team, that's probably who you ended up also liking, right? Because it was modeled to you like, these are the good guys. These are the heroes and everybody else is the villains. And even as you get into adulthood and you realize like, there's literally not a single player on this team that was on the team I rooted for when I was a kid or was on my dad's favorite team or whatever. Like, it's literally just the uniforms. It's a different coach. It's a different owner. It's different players. It has nothing to do with anything from my childhood, except it's like the same colors. But there's something about that team that still just feels right to you. They feel like the good team because that's what you that's what you learned growing up and that's what you heard. Um, and so when it's something that's not as harmless, when it's something like you're not good enough, you know, you you're gonna have experiences that tell you that that's not true. You're you're gonna think about it and be like, well, an A is actually really good. Like, why should I feel like an A is not good enough? So your logical mind can tell you one thing but your heart can tell you another. And the thing that I want people to remember about that is when you get in that space where one thing makes the most sense, but the other thing feels right, the only thing it means when something feels right is that that is the thing you have heard most often. It doesn't mean that thing's true. It doesn't mean that thing's right. It doesn't mean that thing is helpful. It means that has been a consistent message in your life. But we can learn things that are wrong. We can learn incorrectly. Just because you learn something and hear it a thousand times doesn't mean it's true. Language, again, is a good example of that. So, you know, in the USA, we have regional dialects, right? Depending on what part of America you grew up in, you may use different words for things. In the Midwest, we call carbonated beverages like Coke and Mountain Dew, we call those pop. On the East Coast, they call it soda. So if I grew up in the Midwest and I moved to the East Coast and I'm calling things pop, people are going to tell me I'm wrong. But that's what I've learned. That's what I've heard was correct. So that's just kind of how our, our brain works as far as learning is repetition equals truth, even if it's something that isn't true. Does that make sense? That's that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the whole time you were talking, I was, of course, listening quite intently, but I was thinking about my myself because I would say in my personal journey, I'm a nerd. And again, I was always expected to to perform above everybody else right so for me even with my podcasting and with studying nutrition and studying training i pride myself on knowing 
just about everything I could possibly know. If I don't know it, I'm going to figure it out. I read scientific studies when I'm laying down in the evenings, you know, mm-hmm. like an hour before bed or whatever. And one of the last things I do is I read a study and kind of absorb it. Now, that could be good or bad, but at the same time, I can take that to the extreme because I'm saying, you know, I'm the weight management expert. I'm going to be the best. And you hear my name, you're going to know I'm the best. And I have, and this is why I meditate, by the way. This is why I practice mindfulness, right? Because I'm not saying you can meditate all your problems away, but for me, that allows me to hold my energy or hold my thoughts a lot better. If someone gets on my nerves and annoys me because, for example, I've had clients where I've had to tell them the same thing 10 times. And I've, I told one client the other day, why do you hire me? Because you keep doing what you want to do, but I'm telling you what I know. And it annoys me that he doesn't believe what I'm saying, even though he hires me and he knows I'm the expert, right? But I have to say to myself, okay, I can't, I have to find ways to not let that bother me. But that's again, because of how I was with, with me being brought up. My parents never told me you should or don't or whatever, but I just knew what my expectations were and I've brought it into my childhood. And that's something that I still deal with up to this day, I've gotten a lot better, but there's still a lot more work to do. Um, another thing with that you said is, uh, that I want to highlight is, I always say people talk with sound bites, and the sound bites come from what they feel or they 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 learn from from being childhood. For example, I've talked I talk about eating carbs at night and why your brain can need adequate glucose to improve your sleep quality. And immediately I hear you shouldn't eat carbs at night. Who told you that? Well, every bodybuilder or every every workout person I've heard for the last so, so many years. And again, I say, why do you hire me? Because you're telling me what you know, what you hear and you think you know, but you hired me to teach you what's actually correct. I'm not saying you should go out there and, you know, binge on carbs at night. That's what I'm saying at all. People know what I'm actually talking about, but, you know, just to clarify. But however, it's those situations that we talk from, from sound bites of what we think is right because we hear it over and over again. Now, it's up to you to decide where, again, I might be even be simplifying it here, you being the expert, that it's, it's up to you to decide if you want to work on that to where you're now starting to really think through it and acknowledge, why do I think this way? Why is this happening? Why am I experiencing anxiety here? Why, you know, and you start to work on the why things are happening along with implementing the, the techniques from your book, for example, or working with a specialist, it can really start to transform your life. And that's so to take a, if you want to take something practical with all that too, what we just uh, like our whole conversation we just had, if, if, if you want a soundbite from that, like, so what do I do with all this information? The, that the basic principle of like what you hear the most is going to be what feels the most true. And it's going to be what you kind of operate on at least subconsciously. If you know that that's true, over time, you can change what it is that you've heard the most, because as an adult, most of what you hear comes from you. What the voice you hear most is your thoughts all day long, way more than every other person in the world combined, right? For most of us. So let's say, let's say that I'm the same as you. Let's say I struggle with the belief that nothing I do is ever quite good enough. And my logical mind is able to say like, well, that doesn't really make sense because I have a doctor's degree. That's the, that's the highest I can get. There's, there's no next level for me educationally I've, I've, I've gone as far as i can go i'm i'm running a very successful intensive outpatient program that's helping a lot of people i've written a book that people are loving like logically it's hard for me to say that i haven't done a pretty good job in my career but that doesn't mean i won't feel in my heart that it's still not enough so if i want to bridge that gap if i want to fix that discrepancy 
between what I really know and logically understand is true and what feels true to me, I got to make sure that the voice of truth is the one I hear the most often. So if I just keep repeating those truths to myself over and over and over again in my head, you've helped people. People like your book. You've written a book. I mean, even if people hated the book, it's just just writing a book is an accomplishment, even if it sucks, right? Like that's still more than a lot of people do. Um, but just basically speaking those truths to myself over and over and over again. If I do that enough, at some point, I'm going to cross that threshold. And the message that I will have heard the most is, no, you're doing all right. You've done some pretty good things in your career and you should feel good about that. Right. Once that has become the dominant voice that I have heard, that will start to not just sound accurate logically, but it will start to feel true in my heart because the, what we believe can change over time. And it's mostly about what do we keep hearing? What's being reinforced and what's kind of falling by the wayside because we're not hearing it as much these days. So anyone can do that. Anyone has that ability to speak truths to themselves that match what they want to believe or what they logically think is true. I don't want to dwell on this point too much because there are a couple more questions, but I really want to add on to this because I've, so I play the guitar, right? And since I've been playing um, guitar, my biggest struggle has always been singing. I don't have a, a good singing voice. So I will play and sing to myself, but I will not sing in public. But what's interesting is my, like, for example, my friend was diagnosed with, I'm not that my friend caught COVID yesterday, right? And we're sure. on the phone. And she wanted me to sing for her and she fell asleep. And I've had um, other podcasters ask me to play my guitar and I'll play the song at the end of the episode. And that's and before I used to be nervous and kind of scared to do it. But now, even though, yes, I may not sing like, I don't know, Billy Joel or somebody, but people, everybody that I played for has enjoyed it. I'm again, me being from that society of if I A, I got to get an A plus. If I'm a singer, I have to sound fantastic. When I've had one of my friends said to me, I'm really just listening to how good you play the guitar. The singing is in the background, but the guitar is what I'm really focusing on, right? But because people have been encouraging me and giving me those positive feedback, now if the first time I played for somebody, they said, you suck. That would have been, <laughs> you know, right. I probably would never sing again for anybody, right? So I love you talk about that positive feedback. And if I do get a negative feedback, because I've heard so much positive, it really won't affect me as much. But if I've heard a lot more negative and then the one, two positive, my brain probably will be more likely to be like, you know, maybe you do suck. <laughs> you need to put the guitar down, right? So thank you for that. I think that's, um, I, I, I like that feedback. I never thought about it that way, but that's really true. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, now you also talked about, I want to talk about rewarding ourselves, right? Kind of similar with me. I feel good when I play the guitar or play it for sick people, I guess. Um, <laughs> mammals do not respond well to punishment. And this can be a little controversial. So I really want your thought on this. Mammals do not respond well to punishment. Try rewarding yourself instead. What do you mean by that? So if you think about when we're trying to change, whether it's our own behavior or somebody else's behavior, um, behavior is mostly dictated on what happens afterwards. Like you, you actually just said it perfectly talking about playing your guitar. If I play my guitar and someone says, I really enjoyed that that is a reward, right? That makes you want to do it again because you like that feeling of like someone praising you and, and saying, good job, saying, I enjoyed that. That feels good to you and you're going to want to feel it again. So you're going to want to do the thing again that made it happen, right? We might also try to change behavior through punishment, which is either adding something unpleasant or taking away something pleasant. So 
it's really been consistently demonstrated that the mammalian brain, and these are, these are not studies done on humans, but it's important to remember that the human brain is very similar structurally and functionally to other high-level mammals like dogs, for example. Um, like the dog brain and the human brain, they're like 80% the same. We obviously have a lot more um, you know, cognitive abilities and critical thinking and, and executive functioning. But like the nervous system and the limbic system, which is where a lot of learning takes place, they're very, they're wired very similarly. So we, we learn more quickly than dogs, but dogs learn in generally the same way that humans learn, right? And we know that in dog training, dogs learn much more quickly through a system of reward than a system of punishment. If you're trying to house train your dog and you praise the dog every time it goes outside, it will master that behavior much more quickly than if you yell at it every time it goes inside, right? When we get punished for a behavior, we just try to avoid the punishment, but we don't necessarily try to change the behavior. We just try to find a way around it. So like, give you an example from my childhood. I, I used to stay out late way too often, okay? Like it was just, I don't know. I just didn't, I didn't come home on time. It's just the thing that I struggled with for whatever reason. And my parents would start keep my, I'm 39 years old. So when I'm a teenager, like we don't have cell phones. Right. So like I, you know, unless I'm with, unless I'm at somebody's house, I can't call anybody. They started locking the door to like punish me. Like, Oh, you, you try to come home at 3am. Well, doors locked too bad. But rather than starting to come home earlier, I just found a way to get into my house that didn't involve using the front door. <laughs> I learned, I think they know this, and I don't know if they listen to this anyway, but I'm sure they know by now. I learned that, so we had a, we had like a porch in the back, but it was up high and there was no stairs leading up to it. So they never locked this back door. So there was a pretty big tree next to it. So I would just climb this tree and jump onto the porch and then basically break into my own house. <laughs> So their punishment didn't change the behavior that they wanted to change. It just made me find a way around the roadblock they had placed in front of me. And that's, that's usually what we do. If, you, if anyone listening to this, like if you think about your own life, when you're punished for something, you're usually just trying to find a way to avoid the punishment without changing the behavior. You, I'm, I guarantee that you see that a lot when you're helping people with their diets too. When people are trying to change a certain way that they eat. If there's like, if they, if they have a way where they try to like punish themselves, like, oh, I'll just call myself fat every time I eat this certain food, they'll just find a way to not do it and still eat the food. That's how mammals work. We don't really learn through punishment. We just learn to avoid punishment. On the flip side, if you reward someone for a positive behavior, there's really no other way that they can get that reward unless they engage in that behavior again. There's typically not an alternate route to get that positive outcome. So that's something we know in general. And I think most of us understand that when it comes to like our pets or our kids, or for example, where I see a lot of people lose sight of that though is when they're trying to change their own behavior. I constantly see people try to change their own behavior by punishing themselves when they don't do what they want to do. A lot, and that punishment might even just be verbal. It may, it may not be like, oh, I'm going to take away my phone for a day or something like if you beat yourself up if you shame yourself if you're like oh i'm such a piece of crap because i said i was going to do that and i didn't well that's punishment that is you essentially trying to shame yourself into change and all it's going to do is it's going to make you rationalize the behavior instead of trying to change the behavior whereas yeah. if you can set up a system 
where you get some kind of desirable outcome for a new behavior you're trying to engage in, and there's no way you get that outcome other than engaging in that behavior, that is going to be your most successful strategy for change because you're a mammal and, and that's how our brains work. I was interviewed on a webinar today. There was like a panel of a few of experts and they brought, they were talking about exercise and I, they were talking about for people who are new to working out and exercising, how much, how often should they exercise? What should they do? And my answer was the best exercise you can do is whatever exercise you can do. And what I mean by that is I don't expect you to go lift six days a week and go running and do all the things that I do. Those are things that I enjoy. They're things I love. First of all, if you're only getting three, 4,000 steps a day, ramp it up to five, maybe add 1,000 every week or 500. Just start moving because when you start to move around, you start to realize you start to have more energy. You start to realize that you and you use the things that you enjoy to do and you start to add in little things in it. Like, okay, maybe I'll add in, you know what? I like cycling with my kids. I can add that into my workout, right? Sometimes going for a jog. I have clients who going for a jog is healthy. Even I may not even recommend what they're doing for my program, but I know that they love to do that particular workout. I said, do it. We'll figure out it. I'll figure out the nutrition around it, right? And that's what they enjoy. And that's what works. And I have one guy, he cycles like an athlete. I mean, this guy's over 300 pounds, right? And I know that the way he cycles, if he doesn't eat the way I ask him to eat, he's going to burn muscle like crazy. But but I changed his nutrition around how he what he actually likes to do to help him with that, right? Also, I've had clients text me and say, I'm getting out of bed. I usually like struggle to get out of bed. My core strength is stronger. I'm not sleeping as much. And those are the rewards that you're talking about. And I always realize that when they start to experience those things, they're more likely to come back and come. And then they just get attached to me at that point too. Because I keep I don't keep usually keep my clients for long. That's part of my whole goal, whatever. But Usually they get to the point that they just love seeing the results. It's kind of like, okay, like for example, even just training, you realize I drop a pound of body fat and you look in the mirror and you start to see those changes. That's going to be more beneficial to you than if you if you keep gaining weight and you work, what you're doing is not working, you're going to be a lot more likely to give up because that's kind of like a punishment is gaining weight for eating too many carbs. But if you're losing weight from what you're doing and you're building muscle, then you're going to be more likely to move on. And I see that with my clients all the time. So I definitely think you're correct. And by the way, thanks for giving us instructions how to break into your house. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's my parents' house. So I don't, they don't even live there anymore, so it's all good. <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. I don't live so at home worried. anymore. I got my own place now. <laughs> I can go. I can be home whenever I want now. But like, yeah, I mean, you just said it perfect. Like, say you got two people trying to start an exercise program. And one person says, I want to start working out so that I have more energy. So they're chasing a reward. They have this positive outcome and they want to get closer to it. The other person says, I want to start working out so I don't look terrible. So they have this negative outcome that they're trying to avoid. That, like, if you even just think about it, which one of those makes you feel more motivated? It's the first one, right? We, we prefer, it's more motivating to move towards something positive than away from something negative. When it's this negative that we're trying to dodge or escape, it just kind of makes you feel like crap. You're like, oh, that's me. I don't want that to be me. That's terrible. But when you think about this positive outcome you could achieve, it's so much more motivational to our brains. And that's just how we're wired. So you can apply that to anything, any behavioral change you're trying to make. If you're framing it as like, I want to be less bad or whatever it may be, just flip that around. What are all the good things that are going to happen if I can do this? And keep thinking about those instead. Way more likely that you're going to keep doing it. That's just how we work. That's really true. I love that, man. Thanks for sharing that. I don't think I've had somebody on the show that's really broken that down for us. And I know 
that's going to help me and definitely my audience. Before we get to the hack of the episode, I want to ask, also ask you about our consistencies. Because what do our consistencies say about us? I think our consistencies show what our values are. Because that's another, that's another important thing. Like If you can tie that in, anything you're wanting to do, any kind of habit or routine you're wanting to start, if you can connect it to a value you have, something about how you see yourself or how you see the world, it's, it's almost going to be hard for you to not keep doing that thing. Um, we use exercise as a metaphor a lot, so we'll just roll with that one. Like, I see myself as a fit, healthy person. That is a, that's a part of my identity, right? I consider it a piece of who I am. So it, it's hard for me to not work out. I naturally want to work out because I see that as a part of who I am. On the flip side, so I have a dog. The dog is more my wife's dog than mine. Dog ownership isn't really part of my identity. Mm -hmm. I'm not that, I, I don't dislike dogs. It's just, it's not something super important to me, right? Sounds so like if a my justification like, to me, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so if my wife's like, hey, can you take the dog out? I'm like, ugh, I don't want to do that. Like, that's objectively easier, right? If she's like, hey, go in the gym and work out for 30 minutes. Okay. Go outside with the dog for two minutes. Oh, I don't want to. <laughs> because one of those is something I value and it relates to how I see myself. And the other one is like, it's not that important to me. And that, that also, that's also something that has a huge bearing on our motivation is, does it tie in with your values? I guarantee like everybody listening to this probably has things they do regularly that are objectively pretty difficult things. And also things you avoid doing or kind of put off that really aren't that hard. And that's often a big piece of it is, does it relate to how you see yourself? Is it a part of your values? Is it a part of your identity? And sometimes you have a little bit of control over whether it is or isn't. Like, I don't necessarily love to clean either, but I do see myself as like an organized person. Organization is a really major value to me as well. So even though I don't enjoy the act of doing the dishes, I enjoy having a clean kitchen. So I think of it not as the act, but as the value. This is something I do to continue to be the person I want to be. This is something I do to live in alignment with my core values. Because if I just ask, do I want to do the dishes or not? Well, like, obviously the answer is going to be no. It, it's not fun. It's not an enjoyable activity. So... A lot of times that stuff just relates to what your values are. And if you can find a way to connect the activities you want to do more often to a core value that you have. And that's, I think, what our consistencies are ultimately about is what we really value. What do we really think is important? And what are we willing to let fall by the wayside? You can't do everything. You got to make choices. I agree. So I had someone that told me one time that when they look at someone who's in really good shape, especially when they're older, they, their thought usually is that person is disciplined. Right. But someone else can look at someone who's really in shape and have 5 million excuses why they can't get what that person is getting. And that's just one of the examples, right? I mean, there are other things too, but just thinking about like how you respond when you see certain things and, you know, what you do in your life, a lot of that willpower only takes you so far, but your value system is really what guides you throughout your life. And Dr. Rishi Shampal, um, who I think two weeks before this episode released, uh, we had a fantastic interview and he mentioned, he asked me, he said, Zico, what are your value system? I'm like, actually, I don't know. I may have to go write them down. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's true. And thank you so much for sharing that. And now we're coming up to the hack of the episode. But of course, before I ask that question, I have a gift for my wonderful audience out there. 
I'm going to tell everybody about AminoCo. See, their products are 100% science-backed, built on amino acid technology, first funded by NASA and further refined through rigorous research and independent clinical trials. They have determined the precise blends of amino acids to help you become stronger, heal faster, reduce age-related declines, and, this is a biggie, improve your overall metabolic health. So today, I'm going to tell you about one of my favorites. It's Perform. It's an essential acid-based formula designed to help you improve muscle performance during exercise, enhance mental clarity and concentration, reduce fatigue and dehydration, and minimize recovery times. Perform is designed to boost athletic performance by increasing peak physical strength and endurance, also while improves, improving focus and concentration. I love their products. Since I've been using Perform, I also use Heal as well, and that's a, I'll talk about that another day. I've gotten stronger, I power through my workouts, and been putting on more muscle mass. The formulation is absolutely genius with the uh with the with the essential amino acids with the creatine and also the pre-workout that delivers to your body at the right time let me tell you something oh my god it's it's it's, it's a fantastic product the, the ingredients in perform have been clinically proven to improve strength and physical performance in these clinical trials check this out 20 percent increase in exercise completed 20%, 22% increase in endurance, 11% increase in peak power during exercise, 10% improvement in cognitive function during exercise. And also, it tastes great. I use the, the natural one that's sweetened with stevia because, you know, I'm a health freak. <laughs> but it really does taste great. It really is awesome. I say go ahead and check it out. Go to aminoco.com Zico Health. You get 30% off Perform and all their amino acid supplements. Of course, the uh, the website is going to be in the show notes and in the description of this episode. And with that being said, let's get back to the regular scheduled programming. So let's talk about anxieties. How do we acknowledge anxieties and how do we start to overcome them? So the most efficient way to do that is to find something that I call your discomfort zone. So if you think of any individual topic or, or situation that provokes anxiety for you, it, it can fall into one of three different categories. You've got your comfort zone, right? Everyone probably kind of knows what that is already. Those are the things that don't really stress you out. They're not a big deal. You can do them whenever. It's easy. And then there's things that are just way too much, right? Completely overwhelming. Like I would, I would shut down. I would have a panic attack if I had to do that. And then there's going to be this narrow little window that's in between those two extremes. It's out of your comfort zone. So it's stuff that is challenging. It, it is uncomfortable. It is stressful, but it's not quite to the point where it's going to completely overwhelm you. And that's the zone you want to find. And you want to do as many things as possible in that zone, because what will eventually happen is over time, those things will become a part of your comfort zone. As you've had enough experiences doing these things and nothing terrible has happened to you, your brain and your nervous system will eventually say, I guess that thing is not as big a deal as I thought it was. It seems scary. It really wasn't. I can handle it. And at that point, it becomes part of your comfort zone. And that discomfort zone moves up to whatever 
the next highest level was. So let's say this is actually a real example. I, let's say I, I used to have a fear of public speaking. And, you know, I can talk in front of the mirror, whatever, that's fine. There's no one watching. Um, but if I had to talk in front of like 40 people, I would, it would be a disaster. I'd be so anxious that I would do a terrible job and I'd, I'd walk away from it feeling like, oh, I should never do that again. But maybe if I talk in front of three people, that's all right. No, I'd prefer not to do it, but like, it's, it's okay. It's not so overwhelming. It's going to really be that big a problem for me. It's just something I prefer not to do. But if I do that every day, Am I still going to be scared two, three months down the road? No. Just like you with your guitar playing, at some point you do it often enough and you don't even have to get great feedback. Just as long as you don't get bad feedback, you're going to be like, I guess that's not that bad. And that's when you can start to do the next hardest thing, playing for a bigger audience or releasing an album if you're a musician, whatever. You know, you just keep moving up. You just keep leveling up. I'm at the point now where I run a group-based program eight hours a week. We're about to start another one next month. So I'm going to spend 16 hours a week public speaking. Um, I do podcasts like this, right? I've done live TV. I've done all kinds of things that five, six, seven, eight years ago, I'd have been like, nope, nope, not going to do that. Leave me alone. please. <laughs> Don't make me do that. And the key is to pace yourself. Don't let yourself just stay in your comfort zone because you'll never grow. But don't push yourself too far either. Because if you push yourself way out of your comfort zone, it'll stress you out too much. And even if it goes okay, the amount of anxiety you felt while doing it is going to make you not want to do it again. So you've got to find that middle ground. It's what I call the discomfort zone. That's a whole chapter in the book, too, if people want to read more about that. And please do. Again, uh, the book is uh, For When Everything is Burning. Please go there and check it out. And by the way, um, where can uh, people access the book, Scott? Sorry, say that one more time and cut out oh, for a second. I'm sorry. Where can people access the book? Amazon. It's available on Amazon. You can get it in paperback, hardcover, uh, Kindle or e-reader, and there's an audiobook as well. So whatever whatever uh, format you prefer, it's available in that format. Thank you so much. And uh, with that being said, man, um, how can our audience get in touch with you or learn more about your work? My main kind of public uh, way to access me is Instagram. So I do have an Instagram account. It's just my name, doctor.scott.eilers. Um, please feel free to find me on there. I try to post close to every day and I'm very responsive to messages and comments. Uh, I like interacting with people on there. Um, and I'm always up for suggestions for topics for you know lives and stories too. So please find me, please connect with me. I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. That's great. And, with, and of course, the uh, his um, contact information will be in the show notes. I think I'm going to make this one, zkhealth.com slash... Uh, I'm going to say Scott, um, Dr. Scott Eilers. I'm going to go DR Scott Eilers is what I'm going to do for the show notes of this one. I was going to say for when everything is burning, but that sounds like a really long URL. So I'm going <laughs> to say zikahealth.com slash um, DR Scott Eilers. And of course, the show notes will be in the description of this episode as well. And thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your day, okay? Thank you, Zico. Take care. It's a pleasure. Same here, man. Thanks for joining the Matter Over Mind Experience. If you got good content out of this or any of my shows, save, subscribe, and share it with anyone who needs this information. Remember, always take the scenic route and enjoy the ride.